Turn, please, in your Bible to Nehemiah chapter 3. And we're not going to read it, but we are going to refer to it. Because I feel like a pent-up teenager. Uh, we're going to grab our longboards and we're going to take off here. So I realized that not too long ago, Pastor Chris had a series on Nehemiah. You see, I don't have his dilemma. His dilemma is not what to preach. His dilemma is what not to preach because he can't give it its full justice. I don't have that problem. I can come to you today and talk to you about the most detailed description of Jerusalem in all of the Bible, Nehemiah chapter 3. Now, I knew full well when someone asked me last week, what are you going to preach on? I said, well, read not Nehemiah 3. So if they read Nehemiah 3, they would have probably been scratching their heads right now. But this is about rebuilding and wall of the walls and the gates, and out of this we will see a theme of restoration. You see, a wall keeps the wrong people out, while gates let the right people in. The walls were for the protection and showed the separation between the people of God and his enemies. So we think of this as a building. It's not a church, it's a building. It's where we assemble. And in building, there are certain things that are required to create features that protect you. And so this is a building that's built, like we're going through the building program right now, this is a building that has been permitted as an assembly occupancy. And so there are certain features that are in the background behind walls that are here to protect you. And so I look around and I see a number of things because walls protect, or they should. And so you will see exit signs there, there, at all the point of the exit signs. You'll see a little red light on there. That means that if the power goes out, there's a battery in there that's working, and it'll last for maybe 30 to 90 minutes because if it's dark, you find your way out. You will see that there's a particular hardware group on these doors that all you have to do is lean against it and it'll let you out because you've got six people plowing behind you and if you have to turn the knob, then you're crushed. You'll notice that those doors and these doors swing out. You'll notice that we have sprinkler fire protection up here. We've got uh, that sort of thing and every once in a while that jockey pump goes off and makes that noise and the pastor just has to talk over it. But you'll notice the placement of them and why they're there, not just for aesthetics but for a purpose. And that's why that one up there is not good enough, and you need one down here too. And so on and on we go. Fire extinguisher in the back. This, this building does not have a fire alarm system, but if it did, there would be a pull station at the exit for you to pull on your way out. It's not designed for you to stay here if there's a problem, if there's a disaster. It's designed to get you out safely. And so when you leave, there's supposed to be a lighted sign a, a light on your way out too. So we have to think of all these circumstances, even the sign that says maximum occupancy. So in, G in Nehemiah's time, were they that sophisticated? No. But there was the reason for rebuilding the walls. And it was one for protection, keeping the wrong people out while the gates let the right people in. In Isaiah 60, 18, it says, Call your wall salvation and your gates praise. You see, these rebuilding of the walls in Nehemiah's time can speak of God's people as a whole, as a church body, as a church family, 
And it can also refer to your individual life because Proverbs 25, 28 says, like a city that is broken into and without walls, so is a man who has no control over his spirit. So if you remember back in your days of whatever education I know in secondary level, we'd have a book report. So a little bit longer than it went when we got to the secondary level there, a little bit more than just a book report, we were charged with reading a book and providing a theme analysis to it. Well, we can do this this morning with Nehemiah, but what we're actually doing in chapter 3 is we're looking at its, the, the whole book, we're looking at its theology. What's the, what's the, where's, where's it going? Why is it here? How does this fit in history? How does it fit in chronology? What is it, what's behind it? What leads up to it? What is its emphasis that we're trying to see here? And so I want to show you on the slide here three types of material that we find in Nehemiah. And it's really easy to do this with any book, but after this integration here, there are three types of material in here. And so you have a total of 406 verses. That's easy to count. But when you break it down, you'll see that there are historical narratives which are, arrive at 146 verses or 36% of the book. Then there are recorded prayers, 46 verses about prayers. It's 11% of the book, and it's interesting that there's 11 different prayers in the book, three of which are imprecatory. That means go get them, God. Okay? Sick them. And then there's this list of names and numbers, and that comprises 214 verses of the book. It's 53%. We see it also in Ezra in chapters 2, 8, and 10, but in Nehemiah it's five books. It's chapter 3, chapter 7, chapter 10, chapter 11, and chapter 12. And of the five books of the 13 chapters, there appears to be, out of these five books, really nothing of significance when I'm reading through. Do I gloss over it? Do I read it hastily? just seems to be saying the same thing each time. These are the types of material. But the key to understanding, and it should be no surprise to us, that the key to understanding Nehemiah is the life and the doctrine of Christ. Now, the big picture, and I don't want the next slide up yet, but there's five Jewish institutions. Now, the stage here in Nehemiah is being sent, uh, set for the coming Messiah. Nehemiah is the last of the historical books. Now I have conscripted the Hunter family to come up and join me here. And I've asked them to help me with this timeline. So we got dad and we got son, right? This is perfect. This is perfect. Okay, so you're the old guy, so you're going to be down here with Adam on this side. <laughs> and we got Matthew, he's going to be here at the time of Christ. So that's going to be perfect. So let's lay this out. We're just going to illustrate this. This is going to be, I need your help so that I don't drop this thing. So you got both, you got the back of the book as well. Okay? So those are you that are involved in your children's education. You've probably seen something like this. In fact, this was a, okay, we can, we can stop right there. Okay, because this is the crucifixion, and then this is where Matthew comes in. Okay? Perfect. <laughs> All right. So we have this whole timeline, and these are like swim lanes. And if you've ever had an assignment that says, tell us what's all the different things that are going on in the world from the beginning, create their own swim line, 
How do they relate to each other? So we have chronology going this way and we have various activities and subjects going this way. So we start with Adam and Eve and we end down here. And while they're holding that, let me grab a, a book that I like. And I'm just going to read a couple of ep excerpts from them. I learned a long time ago, don't, don't say it like it's yours if it's someone else's. So this is Philip Schaff, church historian. Love the guy. This book he wrote in 1882, and this is the 1889 version. And what he said about this time that we're talking about, and what I reread at Christmas time is just a couple of, of lines here. We must first glance, he says, at the preparation which existed in the political, in the moral, and in the religious condition of the world for the advent of our Savior. Jesus Christ, the God-man, the prophet, priest, and king of mankind, is, in fact, the center and turning point not only of chronology, but all of history and the key to all its mysteries. The history of mankind before his birth must be viewed as preparation for his coming, and the history after his birth is gradual diffusion of his spirit and the progress of his kingdom. All things were created by him and for him. He is the desire of all nations. He appeared in the fullness of time when the process of preparation was finished and the world's need for redemption fully disclosed. And one more here, Jerusalem, the holy city, Athens, the city of culture, and Rome, the city of power, may stand for the three factors in that preparatory history that ended with the birth of Christ. This process of preparation for redemption in the history of the world, the groping of heathenism after the unknown God, an inward peace and legal struggle and comforting of hope of Judaism repeat themselves in every individual believer for man is made for Christ and his heart is restless till it rests in Christ. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Little did you know, oh, we got to go this way. Yeah, see, that's it. Right, yeah. It'll, it'll fold. You can just leave it there on the front table. So if we pull up here this next slide, there are five Jewish institutions that's being set for our Lord's arrival. You see, Nehemiah, after his book, there was 400 silent years. Doesn't that seem like just a flash? Isn't it, I'm, I'm, you must have thought about this at some time. Haven't you thought about why did God allow me to be alive now? Why wasn't I born some other period of time? Why can we, with retrospects, see how God knits things together in such a way with retrospect that I could never figure out if I was on the other end of that continuum. 400 years of hardly any communication from God. I do know that 399 years ago this year is when the pilgrims came to Cape Cod Bay. They arrived. They did not step on shore, but they arrived. 399 years ago. That was a kind of a closest thing I could get to 400 silent years. But 
what would it be like? In the past, typically a generation had been referred to as, say, 20, 25 years. As man has lived on, it's actually stretched up to more like 30, 35 years. But if it's 20, okay, so, uh, 20 goes into 400 years, how many times? 30 goes into 400? I mean, I barely have a recollection of a grand, great-grandmother. There was a, a grandfather that I had that died before I was even born. How far back can I, can, I, can I see things? How far back can I piece things together? Certain Jewish institutions needed to be in place for Christ's work to be accomplished and for prophecy to be fulfilled. We have often think of Christmas time where we talk about, oh yeah, this, this prophecy was fulfilled, that makes sense, this prophecy was fulfilled. None of these existed in Nehemiah's time. None of these preparatory features. God brought them together in that timeline, in that crucible of history, so that there could be for this Messiah who must be born into a Jewish community. The Messiah's life must be connected to a symbol of temple worship. The Passover and the law of Moses had to be understood as it related to Christ's redemption. There had to be a separation of the Jewish community from the Gentiles. This separation necessitated a physical Jewish capital, which recognition is still an issue today. And there needed to be a Jewish population to dwell at this capital. Because in 1722 BC, we realized that there was the great dispersion, and now this was like a pre-Camp Gilead situation. We had a wilderness, a very spotty occupation, and things were in ruin. And a very great distance away came the burden that God laid to one man who hadn't even come here, but who had pieced together what would be needed to bring about these five Jewish institutions because none of them existed in Nehemiah's time. Let's move on to the next slide where we see here what I have termed, uh, we've got five repeated themed movements, and it's kind of like the cycles in Judges. And so you've got a, a, a difference here and how, remember, our breakdown of the percentages of the, of the verses in Nehemiah here under the historical and narrative, uh, uh, historical narrative and prayers, we have these things. And this really describes chapter one that Nehemiah was going through, and you might have remembered that Pastor Chris covered uh, back with the series. And so there was this tragedy, both that can be in, in, externally, it can be instern, internally. And you remember it was Nehemiah, his, his expression was so sad that the king asked, what's the matter with you? You're not, you're not normal today. And then there was confession that came out of that and concern. And then sure enough, when you get to chapter 4 and uh, chapter 6, there's opposition. And that opposition comes out in forms of actions and attitudes. Now let me ask you this. If you knew you had trusted advisors around you, how many trusted advisors when you said, let's do this, how many trusted advisors and how many times would it take for you to change your mind? Because in chapter 4, you had the Jewish people coming to Nehemiah telling him how many times, oh, this isn't a good idea. 
So if we understand that the, char- what, the, the test of your character is what it takes to stop you, And if one of those trusted advisors is your family, is your spouse, ten times, and Nehemiah says, nope, we're moving ahead. In chapter 6, the enemy comes to him and tries to stop him five times. Nope, moving ahead. So the lists begin to show us the significance of what was going on, what was being built, what restoration was occurring. And if we go to the next slide, I broke every PowerPoint rule because this one is not intended for you to be able to read. (laughs) And it doesn't even show the whole contents of the book. But in this case, the list I want you to understand because I want you to just take the idea and go back and look at it because what we'll have, and I can read across here some of these things, so I've got the name of the group in this column, and I got what verse it occurred, and who they were sons of, and who repaired what, and what their occupation was, and what their location was. And this is only the first page. And I just did this one time in an Excel spreadsheet, and it tells you the who, the what, the when, the where. And the interesting part about Nehemiah's approach to project management on one side But it's the significance of mention, of effort, of profession, of gender, of those not willing to help, and of location. If you picture the street that you live on and there was a a wall project going down that street and someone said, I want the hunters to go over to the Smith's house and build the wall at the Smith's house. Or if I said, how about the hunters build the wall in front of their house? Do you think there's a little element of quality control going on there? Absolutely. And so you see that in here. And it didn't matter if you were a perfumer or a goldsmith or the daughter or the leader of the city or someone who came from outside to help. And Nehemiah is standing there with his list like Camp Gilead has. Here's 100 things we need to get done. Okay, you do that, you do that. Who wants to volunteer for the dung gate? You know? So on and on we go. These lists are like years ago in the European cathedrals, some of which, when started with a workforce, took two and three generations to finish. And the people that started on the project were dead before the project was even finished. To them, they feel invisible. For those of you that are in the service industry or have been in the service industry, it really is the better you do your job, the more invisible you become. But not to God. Would I look back and say, That's our family name up there. You know, nowadays we buy bricks and we put our names on it and we put it at libraries for fundraisers or hospitals or whatever. And I would much rather have my name of my family up there than on a paver somewhere. God knows who 
participated in this restoration. And so what we see here is in the theme of restoration, five movements of restoration that I talked about under Nehemiah are identical to the five necessities for Nehemiah's coming. Physically, there needed to be a secure wall with uh, a secure city with walls, gates, and guards. Wall is not only for physical protection, but also for spiritual quarantine. Because once they get the wall built in 52 days, then Nehemiah's second phase of the work has to begin, and that's what's going on with the people. There had to be continuity and unity of work. And then, secondly, there had to be a repopulation. In Zerubbabel, in chapter 7, it lists the returnees that came with him willing to dwell in Jerusalem in chapter 11. And then thirdly, there was the renewed interest in the law of the Word of God. And there's the list of those in chapter 10 who were willing to sign an oath to walk in God's law because it had been dropped and forgotten. And then there is the worship. We will not neglect the house of our God in chapter 10. And then uh, fifth was the separation from Gentiles. There was the intermarrying with Gentiles that was trying to be straightened out. There was the, the violation that was occurring where the trading with the Gentiles was occurring on the Sabbath. And that was attended to. And so these themes are more for the orchestrated confluence of history by God. And if we were to separate out the lists from the read or from the understanding, we would miss the theme and the centrality of Christ. What needed to occur for this building to come about? Think high level. We saw this on the video today with with Nehemiah. I mean with uh, Camp Gilead, where it talked about there was wilderness, then there was a farm, then there was a pastor who had a vision, who gathered people to support, to fund, to build, to staff, to keep it now second generation, to keep that whole thing going. Those kind of things don't happen without God's orchestration. And we are negligent if we cannot go back and see those steps retrospectively, hindsight, and say, next generation, here's the baton. Because this baton has all the notches of what God did to bring it to now. It's now yours. And the restoration can continue. Sure, there were signs. There was prophecy to live in that moment. There was prophecy leading up to Nehemiah's time, and there was prophecy that was accounted for at the time of our Christ's birth. Even the leaping of John and Elizabeth's womb, John saying, Behold the Lamb of God, the angels, the shepherd, the wise men, the temple veil, all those things are saying, all these things are popping off in that timeline of history that says, here's what's going on. Such orchestration resulted in, and I want, uh, even if I have to say this twice, the only time, this orchestration resulted in the only time 
and we don't see it in Scripture that it's ahead, but it could change, that heaven, hell, and earth have ever agreed on anything. And that was in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It's never happened again. That's the centrality of what Nehemiah was tasked, whether he knew it or not, to prepare for. And so I want to take now a a transition, and with that historical stage set, I want us to look at the gates. And I want to pull up the next slide here where you will see some things that we'll make some comment about. This is a very simple diagram of what it would have been like for Jerusalem in terms of a shape and the layout of the gates and the temple in Nehemiah's time. And this was the, this was the project. So I am saying that the gates speak of different experiences in a Christian life that we need to come into and through. An entrance into the Lord's presence via these gates. This is not about, okay, I go to that gate, I go to that gate, I go to that gate, and check off the box, and I'm good. Nor is this about achieving some 33 levels of masonry. Nor is this about reading into it, over-spiritualizing it, Our approach to Scripture is exegesis, not eisegesis. But their order and their position is specific, and it gives us insight into the journey that God takes each of His children. It tells us to enter His gates with thanksgiving. And I want you to follow along. We're going to move along in a counterclockwise, just like good Jewish people. We're going to start up here at the Sheep Gate, and we're going to go around and back up again, make a full circle. With, in chapter, now here's where I want you to ref, uh, refer to Nehemiah chapter 3. Because here is, in verse 1, and it also occurs in verse 32, this is the sheep gate of which I will call salvation. You see, the animals were set aside for sacrifice that came through this gate, and we're in the, the, the top, upper right corner there. The high priests and the priests, those who sacrificed the sheep, built this gate, it says in verse 1, with one exception, and that was the triumphal entry. Christ entered in and out of Jerusalem through this gate. In other words, he was a walking parable for, behold, the Lamb of God. It symbolizes where you begin with God, at the cross, where the Lamb of God was sacrificed and took away those sins. This is the very first experience that initiates your Christian life. John 10.7 says that Christ is the gate for the sheep. It is the only gate in this list, in this chapter. It is the only one that mentioned to be consecrated And there's no mention of bolts and bars with the gates, as opposed to the others. All may come to Christ. It's mentioned at the very end, once we have come full circle, because we start with the death of Christ on the cross and end with the Lamb of God in the center of the throne in Revelation chapter 7. 
because he is, in Revelation chapter 1, the Alpha and the Omega. And that's why he's the Alpha in verse 1 and he's the Omega in 32 when we finish the chapter. Salvation. The next gate. The next gate's the fish gate. Or you might be able to say uh, the, the witness gate in verse 3. Fishermen of Galilee in the seacoast of Tyre, they would bring their catch in through this gate to be sold. It speaks of evangelism as we have been called fishers of men. It's a natural progression in the Christian life and usually those who are first saved are the best evangelists out there. And whether it's accompanied by five loaves and two fish, it's never enough until you give it away. And so God continues in your life from salvation to witness. And then I want you to see in verse 6 what's called the old gate. And here's what I would refer to as principles. This means learning the old ways of truth that never change. The importance of doctrine. This gives the believer stability. Through the old, you come into the new quarter of the city in this layout. Jeremiah 6.16 says that, Thus says the Lord, stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Isaiah 58.12, Proverbs 22.28 says, Remove not the ancient landmarks. So don't be deceived for the need for what's new or contemporary. But this is the direction that we're going as we go from sheep to fish, from salvation to witness, and now to principles. I might have said this wrong, but we're being good Jewish people. We're going from right to left when we read, not right, uh, left to right. All right, we come down now to the next gate. This is the valley gate. I would call this humility. Humility. In verse 13, see, Nehemiah left from and returned to this gate on his first inspection night ride in chapter 1. And this leads, we know, to the valley of Hinnom outside Jerusalem, the place where Judas died. Here is where the believer learns of suffering, trials, and humility from this gate. It is something you can't cultivate on your own, but it is what the Lord uses for personal growth, because whom he loves, he disciplines. The Christian needs to remember that in the natural environment, nothing really grows well on the mountaintops, but it certainly does down in the valleys. And so it is with the spiritual. It's never a nice experience, but it always produces fruit because God is never as close as when he prunes. Psalm 23.4 reminds us of the valley of the shadow of death. Moving on to the next gate, the dung gate, or the refuse gate it's called, or the ash heap. Verse 14. And here I would refer to this as cleansing. 
It is from here that leads to the present-day Wailing Wall. This is the place of honest confession where the trash is taken out of your life, where you agree with God. 2 Corinthians 7 and 1 John 1, 9. This is the gate where they would take all the refuse and um, the uh, waste management and DM disposal and Tacoma City trash and they would just they would haul it all out here down to the valley of Hinnom to be burned but this is what happens in the believers life as growth transpires this should be expected and it should be allowed cleansing the valley experiences are used by the Lord to expose rubbish so that the true faith refined by fire can come forth and produce fruit so clearing away the rubbish isn't necessarily easy. It's often repeated. It's especially for those who hang on to things. It can't be corrected from within. It must be removed by replacement. It's not just enough to say, I've got to remove this out of my life without saying, okay, what's going to fill it? What's going to backfill? We do not live in vacuums or voids. But notice at this point that there's how we have been approaching the gates as we start up here and we've been really descending. And now we're going to take an obvious turn and we're going to start up. The fountain gate... is what's next, and that's in verse 15. This I would refer to as the fullness of the Spirit. This speaks to us of the living waters of the Holy Spirit that cleanses our lives and empowers us for Christian life and service in a way not necessarily seen or understood when you're at the sheep gate. But if I'm removing things from my life through the dung gate, it is the Holy Spirit that can enable us to backfill that void. And I want to be very, very succinct about this. is that every believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit at conversion. And the best phrase I have ever heard, and I latched onto it and I've never forgotten it, is that being filled with the Holy Spirit is not the Holy Spirit, not you getting more of the Holy Spirit. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is not you getting more of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit getting more of you. And that's this gate. You are not just a well, but a fountain of living water to be shared. John 7 tells us that the Holy Spirit is water for drinking. And it's no... No, I do not believe by mistake here that as we go from the fountain gate, we now go to the water gate and this is the Word of God in verse 26. This is the water for washing, the Word of God. The wording suggests in this gate was intact and it was not needing any repairs. Such is the Word of God in Revelation 22. This is the gate in Nehemiah 8 where Ezra and the priests held the Bible conference almost like reintroducing to the people the Scripture. 
And they stood for hours listening to that. that was, they, they said they actually built a podium, which we think is the first pulpit mentioned. It's no coincidence that this gate is located next to that fountain gate as the two often will go together. The Holy Spirit is the one who makes the Word of God come alive to you personally, allowing cleansing, encouragement, direction to take place in your life. Let's move on to verse 28. This is the horse gate. This is where warfare takes place. In this respect, horses were used in battle and became a symbol of war. It's spiritual warfare is a requirement of every engaged believer because we are in a battle whether you know it or not. There is a war on the saints until Christ's return. A simple prayer every morning and a simple prayer this morning for me was, Christ, was asking God to bind Satan. 1 Corinthians 16.9 says that there was an open door, but yet there are many adversaries that we are to be in 2 Timothy, those good soldiers of Christ. It was the priests who repaired this gate and the sheep gate since both were near the temple. And now we can see the last three gates can also be prophetic of the end times of, of our Lord's return. You will notice that all three gates are very close together and so are the events which they symbolize. Prophetically, the horse gate speaks of the day of the Lord, the end time judgment as recorded in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. And we come to the east gate. This is the, in verse 29 of Nehemiah chapter 3. This is anticipation or prophetic. It is not saying that this gate needed repairs, but that the keeper of, ga- of the gate made repairs in general. This was the first gate to be opened each day in Jerusalem, and it faced the rising sun. Ezekiel saw the glory of the Lord depart from this gate in Ezekiel 10 and 11, and the Lord will return to the city the same way in Ezekiel 43. Notice that it is just about in the middle of the wall of the temple, just across from there. Prophetically, this gate is so very close to the horse gate. The day of God's wrath ends with the coming of the Lord, as described in Revelation 19. And it's interesting then from the spreadsheet, who was it that helped build this section? It was the son of Shechaniah. And if you look to the root of that word, it means Jehovah has dwelt like Shekinah glory that left and we're waiting for its return. In modern days, this gate is the Golden Gate and it was closed by the Turks in 1530 and it has remained sealed. You can see it, it's just that it's sealed and the Jews rejected Christ and there's no longer a sacrificial system in place. So it's been set aside until our Lord returns. The next gate is the inspection gate or the mustering gate, verse 31. And notice that the temple servants and the merchants are the ones that that did this. And after Christ's triumphal entry, he, he inspected and cleansed the temple. This gate was the place of review of the armies, the registry for strangers, The judgment seat of Christ is where we will be inspected and rewarded. We are called to live our lives with eternity in view, caring more about the things ahead 
than the temporal that we see around us. And prophetically, this gate also speaks of the judgment of the nations that takes place when Jesus returns. This is recorded in the sheep and the goats' judgment in Matthew 25. So where does this take us other than we're now back at verse 32 with the sheep gate? In the book of Nehemiah, you have believing Jews. And for us, that equates to us as Christians. In Nehemiah chapter 3, it talks about the walls that were broken down. And for us, this is aspects of the Christian life that need restoration. In Nehemiah's time, there was the rebuilding of the walls. For us, it's revival personally, within the body, nationally. No one person is responsible for its, this project completion, the complete, uh, accomplishment. It took Nehemiah's leadership and the people's cooperation, a teamwork that I said before lasted 52 days. As we're in the current series with Pastor Chris on 1 Thessalonians, I couldn't help but look ahead and see chapter 5, verse 24. Faithful is he who calls, through, calls you through these gates. And he will also bring it to pass. As we go to the next slide, I want you to see a diagram that's sort of like layers of an onion. And again, this isn't... Um, I'm not expecting you to see it from the back, but we have these different circles around our life that God has put into place. There's a salvation circle, a sanctification circle, a sovereignty circle, opportunities and where we are. And this isn't about ministry. This is about all those things. And again, it's so easy to say, well, I do this and check the box. And I do that and I check the box. My purpose here is more about the circles than the contents of the circle. I want you to see that that arrow where there are breaches, whether from walls in your life that have openings and breaches or gates, that that's how far the enemy penetrates. And it's as we go through and walk with God and that these things and these breaches are shored up and then the enemy can't go as far. And it just, it, it keeps on. It's a, it's a life's work. It, it's, a, it's a generational work. The gates and the walls offered protection, security, and it reflected strength. It allowed for spiritual cultivation both nationally and individually without outside interference. Spiritually, the, the walls and the gates are disciplines that you build around your life and are vital to protect and cultivate a relationship with your Lord. It's not insulation, it's not isolation, it's insulation. And then there's an examination. Are there gates left open for the enemy to slip through? Has there been neglect or loose brick or mortar that be, has created a hole? Have weeds of compromise overrun sections allowing thoroughfares for yesterday's unthinkable rebellions? What one generation tolerates, the next one excuses in excess. But as the breaches are closed, the enemy from without has less intrusion and the grace of God from within is allowed to respond. And so your life is with Christ. And I want to bring about this last slide to where we can see 
some very common things out of this chapter. Develop a genuine concern for the condition of the walls. That is the assessment that Nehemiah did. He actually planned the project hundreds of miles away, had the resources tapped, and was even able to tell the king, I gave him a definite time as to when I would return. Then he has the whole travel to get there. There's the whole um, authorization letters that gave him wood and timber to get in order to build these gates. He arrives and on a night ride makes the assessment. And the project to restore the walls of Jerusalem did not begin with brick and mortar, but with a burden in one man's heart. Secondly is the express direct prayer for guidance and protection. Prayer is not just for the ribbon-cutting time when all those who had really nothing to do with the project show up and take credit. But prayer after they have been given a firm foundation, burdens. We should act on burdens. But when they've been given a firm foundation in prayer. Thirdly, face situations honestly and with determination until the task is finished. Nehemiah didn't gloss over anything, it tells us in verse two, uh, chapter 2, verse 17. And it is only through honest appraisal could he secure the kind of steadfast commitment it would take to see the job finished? Without the same kind of appraisal of your spiritual walls and gates, you will always be running out of determination before the gaps are filled or even start. And lastly, recognize you cannot correct the condition alone. No amount of bricklaying experience can thwart sin's power to crumble your walls. And that's why I think it is so key from the list in Nehemiah 3 that it says you don't have to be a mason to do this job. You just have to be a surrendered individual to our Lord. It's not about your ability to execute, but living in dependence upon God's Spirit that we have the power to erect the spiritual walls and gates needed for survival. Not just for this generation but for that generation that left and went to a different part of the building. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you know our lives so much better than we do. And you know it better than those who think they know our lives better than we do. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for cleansing. Thank you for the fullness of the Spirit. Thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for warfare. Thank you for anticipation of things to come. And thank you that you have sent your Son at the right time in history for this world. We pray that if there's anyone here that has never even entered that sheep gate, 
that this would cause them to ask, to seek, to talk with someone before leaving today. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.